The American Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to this edition of The Leadership List, interviews with authors from command professional reading lists because great leaders never stop learning. I'm your host, George Maurer. Welcome. Today, from the professional reading programs of the Army Chief of Staff, Chief of Naval Operations, and the Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, a book titled Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, authored by retired Army General Stanley McChrystal and co-authored by Tandem Collins, David Silverman, and Chris Fussell. My guest today is General McChrystal. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me, George. I appreciate it. Looking ahead at today's episode, adaptability is more important than efficiency in the 21st century. Everybody else sucks. And can the flap of butterfly wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? General, you laid out a basic five-step plan for leadership in a complex world, which starts at the problem and wraps up with a solution. It's a plan that can be used regardless of the field in which one may work. And we'll touch upon the five steps in a bit of a meandering way, but we'll wrap everything up very nicely at the end. Sound good? Sounds great. Leadership tip from Team of Teams. The Proteus Problem. Proteus, the Greek god of the sea, refers to the liquid qualities of water, if I'm reading it correctly. Think of scooping up water in your hands and no matter how hard you try, it eventually drips out between your fingers. When you took command of the Joint Special Operations Task Force in 2004, it was obvious to you conventional military tactics were not working against Al-Qaeda in Iraq or AQI. They were able to attack and then disappear into the local population before we could respond effectively. Explain how AQI was different than any enemy the United States had faced before. Certainly. When we think about unconventional warfare, guerrilla forces or terrorists, we always think about hit and run tactics or things that are different from conventional warfare. But what I'm talking about here is departure from what had been to that point known about unconventional warfare. So in reality, all the terrorist groups in history had been formed on sort of a efficiency-based model. Think of a pyramid-shaped hierarchy, General Motors, sort of an idea. And while that seems strange to people that aren't in the counterterrorism business, It makes a lot of sense to people who've been focused on it because you typically had a strong leader or founder, tight procedures to protect security, ways to train people, and then the ability to do precise operations, which are important for a terrorist group. And that's what we'd seen traditionally in all terrorist groups to include Al-Qaeda, which was formed in 1988 in Pakistan. What we ran into was in 2003, there emerged something that became known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. 
same name as Al-Qaeda, but the reality was a completely different DNA. And you say, well, okay, we got a different thing. Why does that matter? It matters because our counterterrorist forces were designed to take on the more traditional kind of terrorist threat. And we were, quite honestly, formed on traditional models to be efficient, predictable, purpose-built. And yet Al-Qaeda emerged and it seemed to have little or no structure. And when we looked at it at first, we said, well, how could they possibly affect, be effective in that way? But what they did was they leveraged information technology, which had emerged in the 15 years since the uh, birth of Al-Qaeda itself. And they, they leveraged that to give them a different mode of operating, different qualities. So as a consequence, they were loosely connected, but they were very well focused together on intent. They were wickedly fast. They learned all the time. And at the heart, they were adaptable. They adapted to the conditions and the problem in each place at each time. And we weren't ready for that. One interesting comparison you make is between the complicated and the complex. AQI certainly represents the complex. Human beings like structure. We like when things are comfortable, easily recognized, and we can see patterns, predict outcomes. The merely complicated allows for some structure, but the complex is a whole other animal. Please explain the difference. Absolutely. It really comes from something called the Kinefin model, which goes from simple, where things don't change much over time and you do the same thing over time, to complicated, to complex and then chaotic. But for today, we'll talk, we'll compare complicated and complex. In a complicated world, think about the most uh, difficult jigsaw puzzle you ever had to put together or a model airplane you were making as a young child or a building being built. They seem daunting at first, but you realize that if you study the problem enough, if you bring the right expertise, it can be dissected. It can be ultimately understood and the problem can be solved. It may take a while, but it can be solved. And if something's complicated, how it operates can be predicted. It may take a while to figure out, but it can be predicted. Okay. Complex is different entirely. What it means is in a complex environment, you have more variables and velocity is greater. So the reality is it's impossible to predict something. You can only judge it in the rearview mirror after the fact. When something's impossible to predict, suddenly there is no complicated structure or process that can solve that problem. Instead, it takes an approach where you have to step out, try things, and iterate in response to what you are finding and what is a constantly changing environment. That requires an organization to be less purpose-built and focused and predictable and much more adaptable because in reality, you're always shooting at moving targets. We're not set up for that. We're not set up for that organizationally. The Industrial Revolution with, under Frederick Winslow Taylor and others didn't create organizations for that. And to be quite honest, most of us were trained in a complicated world because it's more comfortable. We can at some point master it. In a complex world, you adapt to it. Now, in a complex world, can the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil 
really cause a tornado in Texas? They can. And of course, that comes from the, the great analogy of something very small could potentially have effects that we can never predict because as variables in the world keep changing, who knows but what the tiniest thing doesn't cause the next thing, cause the next thing, cause the next thing. It's way too complex for us to try to map that out. But the reality is we know that even smaller, seemingly unrelated things can have disproportionate effect in a different place. Once we accept that reality, and we can't control the flapping of every butterfly's wings, then what we need to learn is we have to learn how to deal with hurricanes in Texas or anywhere. When you first stepped into your role as commander of the Special Operations Task Force, you were obviously faced with an incredibly daunting task. You needed to essentially reinvent modern warfare to take on this brand new enemy. What were your thoughts at the time? Well, George, I would love to say that I stepped back and I understood these environmental differences and I came to the conclusion we had to do that, but that's not how it happened at all. The reality was I was trained in a complicated environment. I, like the organization I was part of, the Counterterrorist Task Force, I was designed to be uh, predictable. I was designed to be efficient. I was designed to do things in a complicated way to complicated problems. But as we started to go after al-Qaeda in Iraq using traditional methods and expecting traditional outcomes, we found that didn't work. It took us a while to understand that the, the basic nature of al-Qaeda in Iraq was different, not because they had intentionally designed it that way, but because the emergence of information technology had just caused them to evolve that way. And so what we made the decision is we had to win. We didn't have a clear roadmap. We didn't even have a, a real good appreciation, except for the fact that we knew things had changed. We knew that our traditional methods were not working. And therefore, instead of being able to map out a clever path from point A to point B, B being victory over the enemy, we were going to have to iterate. And that was going to be an indirect course as we go one way, we make mistakes, we learn from them, we adjust. And we came to understand that we were going to feel our way along. And that required us to change our mindset instead of trying to make what we had always tried to perfect in our processes and our culture and our techniques. In try, instead of trying to perfect and make them work, what we had to do was do what works and learn from that and then keep changing. There's an old adage I was taught as a brand new lieutenant that said, if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. <laughs> and never did anything prove more true. And so we all had to step back, put our egos, you know, in our rucksacks, because when you're in the learning mode, you're not the person who knows everything. And the entire organization just had to, to take this approach that says, we're going to figure this out and we're going to probably do it, making a lot of mistakes in route. Something you already touched upon. For the last 100 years or so, something called the principles of scientific management set up leaders to gather data and then make decisions based on that data. In your book, you discussed Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is considered the father of scientific management. Break down a process into its individual parts and then figure out the best way to accomplish each part. 
and this leads to a very efficient process. The Henry Ford assembly line, for example, very predictable solutions to very predictable problems. What were some of the challenges you faced in convincing others to move away from this world of the predictable? Absolutely. Uh, I had heard Frederick Winslow Taylor's name when I was younger studying, but I wasn't really familiar. But in reality, all of us were products of his thinking and, and his colleagues who wrote and studied about it. And really, as you described, Taylor tried to figure out the one best way to do each task. And then from there, build processes that link together. And from there, build organizational designs that most efficiently execute those processes. And in a world where your requirement doesn't change rapidly, i.e. you're building the same product over time, you can create those processes, you can tighten up the procedures to be very efficient and produce a repeatable action or a repeatable product very well. The military uh, for a long time has had to take thousands and thousands of young men and women basically untrained in military things, train them up and move them from point A to point B, which is a logistical masterpiece if done well, and get them to do difficult things on the battlefield, hopefully like an orchestra playing a symphony very, very well. We all know it, that's difficult to do, but that's, that's the, the goal. To do that over time, what we did is we figured out the best solutions to problems and we sort of bend those together as doctrine the best way for a rifle squad to maneuver, for a tank platoon to go. And then when you got to higher levels, the the best approaches to solving higher level tactical and operational problems. I remember reading that the, the German staff college formed in the middle of the 19th century used to have as a standard, if we give two staff officers the exact same information for a problem, we want them to produce the exact same solution to that problem and almost mechanical in nature. And so the idea of doctrine is not this corseting, but the reality is we try to teach a military to do things a certain way because for some reason, either historically or looking forward, we think that that will work. That only works if the problems that you are trying to go after fit into a certain range and the capabilities of the organization that you have also match up with ability to, to execute that doctrine. So inside the military, there was, it's almost a security blanket. And it's not to, to talk badly about ourselves as soldiers. But the reality is, if you, if you have the right way to do something, the idea is if I follow doctrine, if I don't violate the nine principles of war, I'm probably in pretty good shape is a bit comforting. The danger is, what if those don't work? What if that doctrine's not appropriate or those principles of war just seem to elude us? How do we create a mindset that says what really matters is solving the problem, even in the way in which I do that seems entirely unconventional. Leadership tip from Team of Teams. From many, one. While scientific management was very effective at making some industries very successful, manufacturing for example, everyone gets very good at one piece of the overall process, but they also get trapped into their own individual silos. And silos is a term you used a lot in the book. Sure. For example, 
I add this particular part to the frame of an automobile as it rolls past me, but I don't understand how my job affects those who come after me. For an organization like NASA, scientific management was a disaster. And not many people remember, NASA was at one time a national embarrassment, as you described it. We were getting killed in the space race with the Soviet Union in the early 60s. Once they employed something called systems management, everything changed. In systems management, everyone has their own piece of the puzzle, but they also understand the overall mission as well. Tell me how systems management helped turn NASA around. Absolutely, George. There's a concept called MISI, or Mutually Exclusive, Collectively Exhaustive. And if you think of a, uh, a puzzle, those pieces may not touch each other except where they connect, but each part of the organization, each station on the assembly line does their job in isolation. And then some brilliant plan puts them all together and they create the perfect product or outcome. What NASA learned was you could take something, divide it that way, have all the pieces be done to, let's call it perfection. But when they come back together, there's an organic nature to creating something like a, a space vehicle. And the reality is the smallest change in one thing affects all of the others to whether the pieces fit together. And so what they found was the idea of MISI didn't work because the problem is constantly changing. People are making an adjustment to one part on a space vehicle, and then you realize that the the effect is change as many other parts might change the overall weight of the vehicle, might change the need for fuel, any number of things. And the only way they could solve the problem without taking forever is to make everybody understand the entire entity, look at the picture of it and understand how their particular part of the contribution to it has to fit together. And so silos just don't work. Uh, you just can't iterate enough times uh, for silos to work and instead creating what we call shared consciousness, a broader contextual understanding of the wider uh, lets people lets people operate extraordinarily more effectively. And also it produces a different mental uh, approach to it. If you remember the great story about NASA where I think President Kennedy goes to visit and he runs into a janitor mopping the floor and asks him what he's doing. And the guy says, we're putting, we're sending a man to the moon. Wow. And, and so it's the idea that you're a part of a whole that is the approach that's so powerful. That is a great story. And you're right. To feel a part of something bigger than oneself is something that goes a long, long way. Now, you discuss SEAL teams at length in your book, which is a huge surprise since you were the commander of the Joint Special Operations Task Force. <laughs> Their effectiveness is greatly enhanced because they tap into the power of the team. They work together very well. There's great trust among the individual members, and this gives them the ability to overcome almost any obstacle something they would probably never be able to achieve if they were led strictly by one individual who made all the decisions. Please explain this dynamic. 
Sure. In a team, any high-performing team, whether it's a sports team, a SEAL team, or another, what you typically produce is an admiration for the competence of the other people in the organization, a sense of common purpose to what you're doing, a trust that they are there for your welfare and therefore the outcome of the team. So you start with a foundation that allows the team to build. And then on top of that, they take, they take on shared tasks. They often go through common challenging uh, experiences to build confidence and bonds between them. And they develop this almost organic way of operating. So if one person throws a glass ball up in the air, they're confident someone else is going to catch it because they've just interacted so many times that they start to understand one, it's in their interest to do that. And we will automatically do that. It takes a different kind of leadership because it's hard to be command and control or directive in that kind of environment because you're asking for more say, you're asking for more buy-in for members of this small team. And, and they produce extraordinary outcomes. The problem is small teams tend to be cohesive and insular and almost tribal in nature. Because they get so close, they start to, to develop a culture that can be insular from outside cultures. And so small teams like that don't always learn as well from the outside, and they don't always interact well with other small teams or other individuals. And so creating an effective larger team from small teams is a pretty interesting uh, challenge. When you're good at something, there's naturally a little bit of competition involved, just as you mentioned. And that's not a bad thing. Competing makes us better even when our competition includes our fellow service members. In that situation, it's quite normal to develop an attitude that says, everybody else sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, by the way. Unpack that for me. How do you get groups who all think the other group sucks to work together to become a team. Yeah, if you start with the basic uh, dynamic that creates a sense of being an elite organization, you're asking people to ask more themselves to be part of that, to live to a higher standard. And typically you compare that higher standard to everyone else. So if the organization achieves that and lives that, then they almost naturally start to think of everyone else as not as good as they are. And so when we got the seal with that great quote that says, there's a point at which everyone else sucks, what he's saying is, in my small team, they are my family. In my platoon, they are my extended family. There's a point at which outside of that, people are not my family, they're not trusted, and therefore they suck. Um, it's not evil, it's natural. It's almost part of being elite means you've got to achieve a higher standard than other people may hold themselves to. The challenge is when you're, you're taking these multiple elite organizations where there's a natural competition between them, as you talked about, and a desire to achieve a very high standard, they will try to achieve the most, to score the most points, to do the most missions, to capture the most terrorists, whatever it is the metric is. And to a certain degree, the willingness to subordinate their group's outcome to the greater good doesn't come naturally. Uh, what we found is 
you need to do a number of things. The first is you try to build links between the organizations so that some of the disdain they has from other, from a, four other organizations naturally isn't based in fact. You undercut that by giving them interaction. And when you start to know people, you start to respect them. And then the second part is you start to not make it all about an individual or a small team's batting average. You know, you say, it's great if you have a batting average, but it only matters if the team wins the games. And so you try to pull them up and say, we are really trying to send a man to the moon. So you need to mop the floor as best you can. That is just as important as the person who does the software for the lunar lander. Because if you don't do all of those, nobody gets to the moon. And it takes a very intentional and constant effort both at messaging and coordination and making people feel like a part of it to make that work. And that is where you came up with the phrase team of teams. You mentioned in the book, when you grow the size of these teams, they tend to lose that dynamic rather quickly. What special things did you do to ensure that camaraderie remained among the smaller groups, yet they were still able to work with many other groups to become a team of teams. Yeah, this is this is tricky. Um, if you think of the U.S. Army, for example, and if you ask somebody what they are, they won't typically say, I'm a U.S. Army soldier. They will say, I'm a cavalryman, I'm an artilleryman, I'm a dog-faced soldier. They tend to identify with subgroups and that's because there's a certain uh, element to a smaller size entity that it's easier to identify with. And of course, a lot of the subgroups have different, uh, different cultures. And so how do you get them to sort of simultaneously identify with two things, the subgroup that they're a part of, but the larger element? And what we found is to do that, you have to tie them to the mission of the larger element. Uh, when we were in the fight, we didn't have a lot of people go, I am a JSOC soldier automatically. They always tended to go with subgroups if they were identifying themselves. But when they talked about the mission, they could talk about, we are trying to destroy Al-Qaeda in Iraq. That was a mission that would they could get their mind around. And you had to keep pointing people to that. Leadership tip from Team of Teams. Sharing. Getting these groups to work together required something you already touched upon, transparent communications and shared consciousness. And it all sounds very Luke Skywalker kind of stuff. <laughs> what exactly is that? What you want is people to understand as much about the big picture as possible. But if you think about inside many organizations, but particularly the military, there's always been this aversion to sharing information. Part of it was security. If something's secret, you need to know if the person that wants the information has a true need to know. Beyond uh, classified information, there just is a certain power in knowing. If you ever were in an organization where the operations officer or somebody knew the schedule, they were pretty important people. And sometimes they... They took great pride in knowing more than everybody else about what's happening next week. When in reality, their function is to make sure everybody knows what's happening next week because <laughs> you're gonna have to make something occur. 
what we tried to do in the organization was create this idea of shared consciousness. We used to tongue in cheek say, we want everybody to know everything all the time. Now, obviously that's, that's uh, impossible. But the reality is we wanted people to know vastly more than they ever did before. And we wanted them to have a contextual understanding of the big picture, shared consciousness, so that if they understood that, they could make decisions on how to contribute to the overall organizational mission without specific orders. So what that means is if people see the big picture and they know the strategy, they know what's happening, they can take action without an order, which pushes decision-making down or what we would call empowered execution down much closer to the problem and lets the organization be much faster and actually much more effective because people closer to a problem can often decide what should happen and when. And obviously that required a huge culture change with the folks you were working with. What kind of resistance did you run into when you were trying to install this <laughs> new line of open communication? Sure. I mean, there, it was just, if you talk about the classified information, it started with just habit. You just habitually didn't share classified information. Sure. Loose lips sink ships, for example. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's just habit. In 2007, we captured many of Al-Qaeda Interact's personnel records, and we did it on a raid that was west of Mosul. And when we captured their personnel records, I remember my, my uh, intelligence officer was telling me how valuable they were, and I opined if we could share these with the countries, it was about foreign fighters entering. If we could share them with the countries of origin for these foreign fighters, they could do something about it. And, and I said, Bob, it's classified information. And then I was reminded by my intel officer, in fact, I, as the capturing organization, had classification authority. So I said, you mean I could make them unclassified? And he said, you could. And we would have never dreamed of doing this a few years before because we'd captured secrets from the enemy. But in the reality, the enemy knew their personnel records, so we weren't divulging anything to them. And they actually knew that we had done that raid, so they probably knew we'd captured them. And so we declassified when we shared them. There was a lot of consternation across the intelligence community about that, but it turned out to be very, very effective. Now, in retrospect, it was a common sense thing to do. In the moment, it seemed bold, and that sort of highlights what our culture was. Um, and then the idea that we would uh, share information in a real-time basis about operations we were conducting seems to be dangerous to our force, which obviously taken uh, or done incorrectly would be. But what we found is the war was going so fast that most information that had been carefully controlled in the future had a, uh, a very limited lifespan, meaning 24 hours later, it wouldn't matter if the enemy knew it because we'd have already done something about it. So the reality was we changed how we thought about that. We accepted a little bit of risk, but the idea is we got so much more power out of people having a much greater understanding of what was happening. Sure. In your book, you have a chapter called Getting the Brains Out of the Footlocker referring to something your dad used to say to you when you were a kid and you did something stupid, as you called it. He would say, put your brains in the footlocker. I'll do the thinking around here. And in Iraq, as you described with your intelligence officer, you went against this advice. You wanted all of the brains out of all the footlockers. 
How does that help a leader in any given situation? Absolutely. And, and my father was always joking when he said that. But the, the reality is, if we think of organizations we've been a part of, uh, information was sent up to the highest levels where the smart people were and then directives would come down because they, quite honestly, they had the best conduits of information up to the C-suite or the headquarters and that they could make decisions. And we really couldn't judge them because we didn't have access to all that information to know whether it made sense or not. I remember being told years ago that the U.S. Navy was an organization designed by geniuses to be executed by idiots. <laughs> and yet, if you go to the deck of a modern aircraft carrier where you've got 18, 19-year-old kids doing amazing stuff, they're making a lot of decisions out there. Sure. And so the reality was there were two parts to this getting the brains out of the focal locker. The first was information technology unlocked our ability to do this like never before. Suddenly, instead of being hooked to landlines like during the First World War, limited number of radios during the second or later, now suddenly we could, we could connect everybody all the time. So there was no longer a technical reason why we couldn't get just about every piece of information we knew available to every member of the, the organization really the ability to get the brains out of the footlocker depended upon two things. The first was information technology. You know, historically, in the days of landlines or couriers, information went to the headquarters of the C-suite because practically that's the only place you could get it and put it together, get a fairly complete picture and then issue directives. So everybody out executing was reliant upon the people at the headshed to know what's best and tell everyone what to do. After about 2002 and three, suddenly we had the ability, leveraging information technology, to get all of the information we had available to everyone all the time. And that was an extraordinary change. But the other bigger part of that was a cultural change because the physical ability to get information to people doesn't always come with the cultural comfort in letting everybody have all the information. Because if you think about it, when we were at, at most senior levels before, and we had a monopoly on the information. If we made a decision, nobody else could really second guess us in the moment because we could say, well, we have information you don't have. And whether we said that or not, we implied that. Suddenly, if you can give information across your organization, culturally, everybody could sort of judge every decision all the time. Now, that's not a negative because what it really lets you do is give people that picture then push down the authority to make decisions to a lower level because they have all the information that used to only be resident at higher headquarters and they can act with incredible effectiveness closer to the problem. Leadership tip from Team of Teams. Letting go. We've all worked for leaders who want to be intimately involved with every decision made under their authority in their command. And in today's world, so much is happening all at the same time. It's just overwhelming trying to stay on top of everything. In order to adapt to the constant change you faced against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, you used something called empowered execution. Give me an example of empowered execution when it was an effective solution for you. Yeah, I would really describe it as eyes on, hands off leadership. 
there's an interesting tension that has grown with the rise of information technology. In the days in which the information really only went to the headquarters, the decisions had to come from the headquarters, and so they did. Sure. Suddenly with information technology, and you can get the information out to everybody, you empower the lower levels, the closer to the problem, to have the information necessary to make decisions. It's funny, at the one time you have the technology to decentralize, you have the technology that encourages micromanagement. I used to be able to sit in our one of our command centers, we had a number of them, we called them situation awareness rooms, where there would be 10 or 12 big flat panel screens. And I could watch from usually from an unmanned area vehicle, full motion video, I could watch every operation as it was being planned and then executed. And through our secure internet, we had our FM radio communications piped in. So technically I could watch every operation from a bird's eye view and listen to and talk to the tactical communications on the ground. So you see a team get off helicopters and start to maneuver on an objective. And from the the safe, warm security of our situation awareness room, I could watch the chess pieces move. Now it's remarkably tempting to think that because I am in that vantage point, that I am the best positioned person and the oldest and the wisest to make decisions on what they ought to do. And yet not once did I listen to their communications, not once did I reach in and give a directive because we we figured out very quickly that that was absolutely self-deceptive. This two-dimensional picture of what's happening tempted us to believe we were in the position to move the chess pieces around, but we're not on the ground. We don't hear the gunfire. We don't know the temperature. We don't know how tired they are. It still has got to be done by the person on the ground or the people on the ground. And so you have to live with this tension this ability to see and technically to touch more, but take a hands-off, a greater self-discipline to not mess with it. Now you can do things which might be helpful and we would maneuver potential reinforcements or fire support or medevac support. But the reality was we took it as sacred not to reach in and try to exercise a level of command and control inappropriate for the situation. I can only imagine what that room must have been like during operations. And you already touched upon the metaphor of the chess master. However, you recommended being more like a gardener. A chess master controls, but a gardener enables rather than directs. Dig a little deeper on the comparison of the chess master and the gardener. If, if you think back historically to warfare, think the Battle of Waterloo, uh, you have the Duke of Wellington and his front line is about a mile in length. And Napoleon's opposite him is a little bit wider, but not much. And essentially it's two chess masters moving units on the field a bit like chess pieces. Now it's not quite that neat and clean, but that's a pretty good analogy. And and the Duke of Wellington would send aides off with little orders written on pieces of paper to subordinates to do things, to move the next chess piece on the battlefield. In our fast-moving environment, where things are are, uh, so much more complex, the temptation using modern command and control to move chess pieces is is pretty significant. I mean, you really got to fight that inner urge to do that. But when you are fighting against an enemy that operates in a decentralized manner, 
And in fact, they make decisions close to the problem. They change, they adapt. You find that no chess master is good enough to play against all of these autonomous chess pieces on the other side because they are not linked the same way to a rigid command and control. Um, so what that means is you got to step back. And I came up with the analogy of gardener because my mother was an avid gardener and she had me out there digging manure and stuff, not doing any, <laughs> you know, skilled work. But sure. um, because what a gardener does is maybe not obvious to people because you'd say, does a gardener grow plants or vegetables or flowers? And my response would be no, only plants can do that. But a gardener creates the environment. A gardener prepares the ground, feeds, waters, weeds, harvests. A gardener creates an ecosystem in which plants can do that which only plants can do. And if the gardener does it well, the plants are all doing it simultaneously. And so the reality is if a leader now takes a, a more of a gardener approach, they unlock in the organization all the plants to do what they, the ability to do what they do. And if you try to micromanage, there's just no way you can do that at scale or speed. Now, it's a different mindset for the leader because it's a little less ego-based. It's a little bit less heroic, if you want to describe it that way. And it takes the leader um, to take a more humble approach because they don't have quite the front and center role that they may have once had but I will argue it, it, argue it is just as important, maybe more so. Leadership tip from Team of Teams. Looking ahead. Imagine a leader, and you don't have to imagine because you've been there, but imagine a leader where your organization just gathered together a brilliant solution to a problem which has incredible consequences if not handled properly. World peace, for example. And then tomorrow, everything is different. Time to come up with a brand new solution because the problem has evolved. How does one keep up in that world? Yeah, it's wickedly difficult for several cultural reasons first. The first is, think of a, a great football team. That team members get their their reputation, their credibility from their proficiency in what they do. And to suddenly say, hey, tomorrow we're going to play basketball is very threatening to people because they spend a long time mastering that. And so they become very protective of their role, their expertise. And nobody wants to be embarrassed at being a neophyte to the new requirement. And beyond that, you may be tooled or armed or equipped for something that next week is entirely wrong. You may be organized uh, incorrectly for what comes next week. And so, when I, wait a minute, are we supposed to reorganize every week? Are we supposed to re-equip ourselves every week? Are we supposed to go to the very core of what has made us a disciplined, effective structure and change that? And if we do, won't we just be a disorganized mess all the time? And the answer is, I think, lies in a hybrid. And the hybrid means you can't afford to reorganize constantly. But what you can do is create an organization that constantly task organizes like the military has been doing for years and does it very quickly for requirements and has the familiarity to do that 
on the fly. I mean, almost instantaneously. And the culture across the organization that when you bring those things together, it's not a cultural high jump that the, the members can't make. They got to be used to that. They got to be expecting that. And so they almost get up in the morning realizing that agility is more important than anything else. The ability to rapidly adapt to the new problem as it really is. You know, they always say you got to fight the war you're in, not the one you wish you were in. And if we can make that a core uh, tenet of how we develop leaders, how we create organizations, I think we become far more effective. But, but it's easier to say than it is to do. Of course. Now, we covered a lot of ground here. So let's do a quick review because there's just so much here. I'll give you each of the five steps one by one, mm-hmm. and then you give me a one or two sentence summary mm-hmm. of that step. And if you can beat the clock, there will be a prize at the end. <laughs> Sound good? Sure. Okay. Ready? Sure. Step one, the Proteus problem. Dealing with a rapidly changing complex environment, and the answer is agility. Step two, from many, one. It's creating organizations which are prideful in their own competence, but also willing and able to come together as larger teams. Step three, sharing. This is the ability to share information and resources that hitherto we just weren't able or willing to do. Step four, letting go. This is leaders. This is the ability to push down responsibility and authority to lower levels while still retaining the role, which is ultimate authority in the leader. And step five, looking ahead. This is the fact that tomorrow's not going to be like today and you've got to prepare for tomorrow. Well, I must say you did excellent. You certainly beat the clock, but... I hate to admit, but I do not have a prize for you. I hope you can forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) I will, George. Okay, good. And thank you. Sure. Retired Army General Stanley McChrystal, author of Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World. For a more in-depth dive on these ideas and principles, I highly recommend you pick up your own copy. Thank you so much for making time in your very busy schedule, sir. You're kind to have me, George. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Leadership List, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer. And remember, great leaders never stop learning. Until next time, bye-bye. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants, Dave Beeson, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott.